The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for church family, for local churches where we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and hear your voice. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep your promises to us today, even the promise that's in the passage we're going we're gonna to study this morning, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and uh, like seeds planted in our minds and our hearts, your word would have deep roots, it would grow in us, Lord, we believe you, we'd love you, and we'd bear fruit. So do that work in us now as we look at your word together, in Jesus' name, Amen. So you may have noticed, and this is one of those thoughts you don't always want to speak out loud, but you may have noticed that sometimes Christianity can look unimpressive. Maybe we think of some individual Christians we've known or we've heard of. Sometimes we hear what they say, we see what they do, and it's cringeworthy. And we think, no wonder people sometimes find Christianity hard to believe. Then there's weaknesses of the church at large, local churches, denominations, institutions. Sometimes they can just look and sound, I guess I feel like sometimes they sound foolish or simplistic. And that's those that are trying. Sometimes then there's the, the just the rampant hypocrisy, right? We know these stories, abusive leaders or divisive quarreling congregations or terrible teaching sometimes. And then, it, if you're not convinced, read church history. Sometimes Christianity can look really unimpressive. More and more our cultural moment, right? We can feel this. Our cultural moment seems to find Christianity unimpressive at best. Christian values are seen as bigoted or self-righteous or oppressive, right? A straitjacket for Freedom, even a source of evil that needs to be kind of put out to pasture. Finally, we have to be honest about ourselves. I mean, God willing, I hope we could be counted as a faithful church. But are we always the most impressive examples of the best Christianity has to offer? Uh, do any of you want to volunteer for that? You know, we need one person, right, to show the world what impressive Christianity really is, does any one of, one of you want to say, oh, me? I mean, my hand is digging for my pockets. Uh, are, we, are we always, are our hearts pure? Are our hands clean? Are our mouths holy? Are you sharing the gospel powerfully, persuasively? Are you serving generously? Are we really always world changers? Or do we have weaknesses, flaws, bad habits, besetting sins? It's true for me. I mean, many, many times I am not impressive. So it's true from a certain point of view, Christianity can seem unimpressive. And it's important to be honest about that reality because that reality can be pretty discouraging. It can raise doubts or choke out faith. And so we have to think about our expectations. 
What were we expecting? Well, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. Just remember some basics. Mark is an associate of the Apostle Peter. So this document is written from an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, and it's just 30 years or so after Jesus' life and ministry. This is real historical fact. We're in chapter four this morning, which is focused in on Jesus' teaching. So if you were with us last week, right, we looked at the parable of the soils, beginning of the chapter, which highlighted the ultimate importance of how we listen to God's word. Some of what we're gonna see today is about what we do with God's word. But anyway, we'll be looking at these last two parables in this chapter, and we're gonna see some key truths Jesus wants to make sure his people realize and take in regarding their expectations of what his kingdom will be like. It's about expectations of the nature of his kingdom. So I'll have four main points this morning. First, we're just gonna do a little bit of background to help set it up. Then we're gonna look at the two parables. And then at the end, we'll think just a little bit about how to respond. First, background. I'm reminded, we started this conversation, we use the word parable. It's probably worth saying, talking about what is a parable? What is a parable? My effort at a summary on that would be, a parable is an illustration from everyday life that Jesus uses to teach spiritual reality. Because it's from everyday life, a parable connects. It's down to earth. It's very visceral. Everyone listening to Jesus would be like, yeah, I know about that. It's everyday life. But it's also a little mysterious. It might not be immediately obvious what the lesson on spiritual reality is supposed to be. So in this way, we saw this last week a little bit, a parable is both like a test and an invitation. A test and an invitation. Here's the test. To really understand it, you have to work at listening. You have to seek to discover truth. You have to listen more to Jesus. You don't just want to go, oh, there's an interesting story, and then move on. To Jesus, that's... That's dangerous. So it's a test. Are you, are you really listening? Are you seeking? Do you want to hear from Jesus? But also the invitation, come and listen. Come and hear. Come and receive the secrets of God's kingdom. So it's a huge privilege. Parable, illustration from everyday life. Jesus uses to teach spiritual reality. Okay, what are these two particular parables about? We see this in Mark 4, 26 and Mark 4, 30. Look, 4, 26, 4, 30. And he said, the kingdom of, uh, Mark, Mark 4, 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if, okay, so what's he talking about? Kingdom of God, uh, Mark 4, 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? All right, what's the second parable about? The kingdom of God. We're, we're catching on to that. It's about God's kingdom. But let's not miss the obvious. Jesus is assuming something that the Bible assures the world. God is king. That's just good to remember. God is king. The, the one and living God of the Bible, he is and he remains king over his creation. He's eternal, all-wise, all-sufficient, creator of heaven and earth. It's all his, and he's king over it ultimately, and no one else. 
Amen? Amen. God is king. Not only that, he reigns now, and he will be seen to reign. Everyone will know that God is king. But that does lead us to this this challenge, right? We have to admit, it doesn't always look like God is king. It's not always apparent to us that God reigns right now. Why? I guess it's due to human sin and God's patience, right? Humanity humanity as a whole is in rebellion against God and his reign. We we don't like, right? That's the sinful heart. We don't like the idea that God is king. Who Who do we really want to be king over our own lives? I want to be king. Or I'll make something else king, anything but the real God, right? That's, that's at the core of our sin. And so there's all these varieties of counterfeit kingdoms. But the promise of the prophets in the Old Testament is that God is going to come as king and claim what is his own. He's going to judge and renew the world. God's going to come and be seen to be king. Now, what did Jesus come preaching? Mark 1.1. We remember what Mark has been telling us about Jesus. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who? Christ. What does that mean? It's a title. The promised king. So Mark is telling you right away, who is Jesus? He's God's promised king king. He's the the fulfillment of those promises that God will come as king and will be seen to be king. And and man, he's next level king because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What else do we see about Jesus? He's the son of God. He's the eternal son of God who has taken on human flesh to come and reign as king. So the first thing we see, we're thinking about these parables. What are they about? They're about the kingdom of God. Remember, God is king. He's going to be seen to be king. He's going to come as king. Number two, we see he has come as king in Jesus Christ. That's just at the heart of Christianity. Jesus is God's promised king. So God's promises are being kept. God's kingdom has come. And now in these parables... Jesus is teaching his people about the nature of his kingdom and what his kingdom will be like. He's teaching you something about what to expect regarding his kingdom. And it's so incredibly important. It's going to form you and and how you respond to him and how you view life and, and how you receive the kingdom and live in the kingdom. It's so important. As Jesus gives these expectations regarding his kingdom, we just need to remember that these these issues were explosive for Jesus' day. The the nation at large is waiting for the Messiah to come. And we know there are many that pretended or claimed to be the Messiah who in the end weren't, and we've forgotten about them because they weren't. But they existed, they were there. But the, the nation was expecting God's king to come. And their their expectations. Well, one of Jesus' disciples, I, I don't imagine you remember this, but Mark 3.18 said, one of Jesus' disciples was named Simon the Zealot. That was a whole movement in Israel 
that believed God's kingdom would come through political revolution and nationalism. That's how we're gonna bring the kingdom. We're gonna, we're gonna fight and bring the kingdom. That was a huge expectation. Even the, even the crowds at large, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king, they're really hoping he's gonna go hit the Romans in the nose. He's going, to, he's going to destroy their, their fortress. He's going to take down the Roman army, right? We're hoping that Israel will be brought to national political prominence again and God's kingdom will come. And that's not at all what Jesus does. Their expectations were off. Or we've, or we've met the Pharisees before. They thought God's kingdom would come when the people finally keep the law like they're supposed to. If we would just keep the law, if we'd be good people, obedient people, then God's kingdom would come. In either, in either case where it's political work or, or piety work, the idea is kind of, we bring the kingdom. And at any rate, the idea is kind of, when the kingdom comes, it'll be like lightning. It'll have immediate results, and it will be impressive. It'll be impressive. And now there's Jesus. He claims to be king in a bigger way than anyone expected. The son of God. And is he impressive? Well, we've been reading Mark and yeah, he's impressive. I mean, he's doing incredible miracles over and over and over again. It's mind-blowing, right? The crowds are swamping to him. That's impressive. He's, uh, he teaches like no one has ever taught. With full authority, he knows exactly what he's talking. Nobody can stand up to him. He's even casting out demons, and as they flee in terror, they scream, he's the son of God. So, yeah, that's impressive. But from another point of view, isn't he, in a way, unimpressive? Now, this is a struggle for people. Imagine you ask this question. So, Jesus, if you're a king, you know, where's your crown? Where's your fortress? Where's your kingly accoutrements? Where's Jesus from? They call him Jesus of Nazareth. And when you say Nazareth, you kind of have to be like, Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is the ghetto, okay? It's impressive only for being not impressive, right? One of his disciples actually says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's where he's from. That's not impressive. He's generally poor, even when he rides into Jerusalem as king, he has to borrow the donkey. He, he didn't pull out a great charger from his, you know, acres of stables. Or if they asked, Jesus, where are your armies? Jesus could be like, well, behold my 12 apostles. <laughs> and, and what do you know about them? Peter's kind of flamboyant, but he's kind of unstable. Uh, they're they're, they're blue-collar workers. They're, none of them are CEOs or hyper-talented. Uh, they're kind of unfaithful. They have character problems. One of them's going to betray him. And in the hour of his need, they're all going to flee. Are they impressive? Or we could say, Jesus, where's your power if you're the king? The religious leaders... They're not crowning him. They want to kill him. And guess what happens in the end? They do kill him. 
So you can kind of you can kind of see it. You can see that angle, can't you? In a way, it looks unimpressive. I mean, as he's preaching, he's just he didn't get a chance to eat because of the crowds, and his his pulpit is a boat, and the and the crowds are sitting on a hill. In a way, it looks unimpressive. So so here's this this contradiction that we need to. It's not really a contradiction, but an apparent contradiction that we need to feel. Jesus says, God's kingdom has come. And we're expecting lightning. And instead, in a way, it looks unimpressive. And guess what? That's absolutely and totally on purpose. It's a part of the plan. Jesus knows this is the case. And he wants to set our expectations appropriately. So that's all background. Parables, the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God. It looks unimpressive. Now we have three points left. So we're going to see the two parables and then one response. Look at the first parable, Mark 4, 26 to 29. So just imagine, okay, Jesus has come as God's king. And imagine you ask him the question, What's the kingdom going to be like? And maybe he's going to say, the kingdom is like a warrior with a sword. Doesn't that sound nice? The, the kingdom is like a, a genius full of success. Or, or the kingdom is like lightning. Well, no, not yet. I don't think you were expecting this. The kingdom of God is like a, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. A farmer planting seeds? That's normal. That's drab. That's part of the nature of your kingdom? Not only that, it's humble. Did you see uh, he's, the man scatters seed on the ground? Verse 27, he sleeps and rises day and night. The seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. It's humble. Do you see the, the farmer does some work when he's planting and he does some work at the harvest. What does he have to do with the growth? Nothing. And honestly, he doesn't even really understand how it works. He doesn't really understand. He just, he plants a seed and then he goes about his business and he waits. And there's no immediate results to be seen, is there? Have you ever planted seeds with kids like for a school project? You know, you you get some dirt, you put some water on it, you plant the seeds, and then the, the kid's like, ooh, this is exciting. He, you know, he stares at it for a little bit. Well, you, you, you probably want to come back later. You know, he, he comes, <laughs> you, come back at, you come back in 30 minutes, and you're like, this is not impressive. You really need to wait longer. He, come, he comes back in the morning. What are you selling, you know? Nothing's happening. There's no results to be seen, not with the naked eye, right? No, go to sleep, get up, do your thing, go to sleep, get up, do your thing. Do that for a long time, live life, wait, and then just realize and trust there are mighty forces at work that do not depend on you. There are mighty forces at work that do not depend on you. And if you're patient, something amazing happens that you had really nothing much to do with. The seed germinates, grows, matures. Weeks later, months later, a harvest pops. Jesus says, my kingdom is like that. 
So what does this mean? Well, you have to understand this parable in light of the first one, the one we looked at last week. Remember Mark 4, verse 14. I think this is key. The sower sows what? The word. So in these parables, what does the seed the farmer is spreading, what does the seed represent? The word of God. The word. God is communicating The word, the message of the Bible as fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. God is speaking. And his word is being proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And just like in the act of creation, you remember Genesis 1-1? God spoke and things happen. His word does things. So how does the kingdom grow? Well, it's like seed sown. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom grows as the word is taught and proclaimed. Instead of armies and marches, there's church meetings with sermons. There's Bible studies. There's you reading your Bible on Wednesday morning. It's sharing the news of Jesus with your family and your friends and your coworkers. It's living your life in light of what God's word has said. And sometimes that feels unimpressive, doesn't it? It feels unimpressive. I'm looking for lightning, but sometimes the work is really slow. You, you plant the seeds and like that little kid, you're like, when's it gonna grow? And it, and there's, there's nothing you can see with the naked eye. You know, as someone who preaches regularly, I, I, I feel like I get how this, I know how this feels. You know, maybe, maybe Marsha's serving in the nursery one Sunday, and after the service, she'll ask, how'd the sermon go? And I'll be like, I don't even know. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm the little kid who put like seeds in some dirt and was like, I don't, I don't know. I threw some seeds around. I did, I did the best I could. And you know what? Sometimes it feels unimpressive. And if you've been here for very long, you remember some of our stories, right? One Christmas, a poinsettia catches on fire during a sermon. <laughs> I run over and blow it out. And you're like, okay, that was good. And then you realize how hard it is to get people back on track after that. <laughs> or, or car alarms or blah, 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 right? Or the sound system doesn't work. And you just... You feel unimpressive, or I think about, you know, things I worry about. How did I do? Did I do my, oh, it just, it feels unimpressive. It just, you know what you should do when you feel that way? Verse 27 has great advice. The sower sows the seed of the word. You see what he did next? He sleeps. So, Matt, go take a nap. <laughs> it's, it's biblical, right? It's right here. It's biblical, because... Church, don't you see? We want lightning. And sometimes we see fruit. But many, many times we forget that our core ministry, I mean, the, things that, the thing that makes a church fundamentally kingdom-oriented is that it is sowing the seed of the word of God. We preach Christ crucified. We study his word together. We sow the seed. We sow the seed. We sow the seed. Sometimes it feels horribly unimpressive. 
But think of our expectations. If your expectations are like a farmer planting seed, hey, sow the word, go to sleep. Get up, go to sleep, get up, go to sleep. Because you remember what? There are powerful forces at work that go way beyond what you or I can ever do. Look at what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1. I love this book. You've got the apostle kind of mentoring a younger church pastor. But just, you know, as you look for themes of the kingdom and the word of God, 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. So that's a big title on a speech, right? Jesus is king. He's coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. What do I do? Verse 2, here's what you do. What do you do? You preach the word. You preach the word. And you be ready in season and out of season. And I think that means when you're getting a harvest and when there's no harvest at all. When it just feels almost tedious and you wonder, is anything happening at all? Preach the word. Preach the word. Proclaim Jesus Christ from the scriptures. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. You know, preach hard, but relax. Teaching, explain. Because guess what? Just like with farming, we sow the seed with endurance and then we wait because we can trust, just like with the farmer, there are deeper forces at work that go beyond us. What is the force? The power of the kingdom is not in us. So let's just pause for a moment and let's, let's repent for thinking that the power of the kingdom was in us. You don't build God's kingdom. You don't even make it grow. I don't. We maybe inherit God's kingdom. Oh, yeah, we do. We receive the kingdom. We live in the kingdom, but we don't, we don't build it. Guess who builds his kingdom? He does. According to the power of his word. We read it this morning. Look at Isaiah 55, 10. You know, can, can you make it rain? Isaiah 55, 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I love that so much. God says his word bats a thousand. It may bring judgment, it may bring mercy, but it is always doing exactly what he wants it to do. The power of the kingdom is in the word. And God makes it grow. So sow the seed and over time, God will bring a harvest. So here's the takeaway already. Last week, we saw the, the primacy of how we listen to God's word. And this week, we begin to see the importance of what we do with God's word. Sow it. Plant seeds. 
So as you, number one, should you sow it in yourself? Should you plant the seeds of God's word, the, the message of the scriptures culminating in Christ, should you plant those in your own mind and your own heart? Church, it's essential. Read your Bibles. Can I just beg you a little bit? Take a mo- and I'm gonna take an awkward moment. I think it was John Piper who one day said, God does have a purpose for social media, as surprising as that may be. And one purpose will be that it will show you that you did, in fact, have time to read the Bible. <laughs> you, you did. Read the Bible. And if you think it's hard, it is hard. I totally agree. I, we try to offer a class here once a year to help you read the Bible. I'll meet with you for coffee if you want help to read your Bible. But like anything you do that's important, nobody's excellent at it the very first time they try. Isn't that true? Do you have a hobby that you've, you've got some skills at? You worked at it. You grow. But, but think of the passion some of you have for some of your hobbies or for some of the things you do at work. If you don't understand how it works, you'll figure it out. We've seen that in one another. If, you, if you're... If you're You'll get help. You'll pursue it. Pursue God's word for yourself. Read it, pray over it, understand it, ask questions, grow, plant the seeds. There will be a harvest in you. Plant the seeds in your family. We, we announced family church this morning. That's part of what we want to do. We want to plant seeds in our families. Fathers and mothers need to teach their families the word of God. We need to hear it together. We need to ask questions together. Think about how it works together. Look at apologetics together. Plant the seeds in our relationships. Read the end of Colossians 3 later. A church needs to be a place where we're always, all of us, speaking God's word to one another all the time. So we have growth groups. We have small groups, officially, unofficially. We need to be a people of the word who think in light of the word, who talk about the word always sowing the seeds in our livelihood, in our relationships, in our neighborhood, anywhere, everywhere we can live and speak the word somehow. Plant the seeds. And you know what happens? You look up and and praise God. I've seen it in you and I hope you've seen it in me. There's a harvest. There's been fruit in your life. You're more like Jesus. You, you think biblically. You're, you're doing amazing deeds of service and love. Your, your lives are different already. It wasn't like one button was pushed and lightning striked and you were totally different. No, it wasn't like that. It was over time and you, you grew and you matured. I see God's harvest in you. How did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> How long does it take? I don't know. We just try to sow the word, then we go to sleep, then we get up. And over time, who grows his kingdom in and through us? God does. And you know what I love about this parable as we wrap up this first one? Despite the seemingly unimpressive nature of his kingdom, does Jesus seem insecure to you or confident? He's confident. He, he feels just fine. He knows his kingdom will grow and there will be a great harvest. And he knows that the power of the kingdom is in the word of God, who Jesus is and what he did to fulfill the scriptures. So the word. 
Be patient, it'll grow. Now for the second parable. The first parable is about our expectations regarding the growth of the kingdom. The second is more about the results of the kingdom. So you find this in Mark 4, 30 to 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Again, what are you hoping for here? Chariots. Earthquakes. A revolution. And what does Jesus say? With what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed. A mustard seed? If you're trying to describe something excellent and amazing to your friends, have you ever been like, oh, it's so rad. It's like a tiny seed. And I imagine Jesus' audience, I mean, this is, this is not what they expected regarding the kingdom of God. He says, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which sown on the ground, and then Jesus says, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And I have to tell you, some, some scholars have actually written how you can't believe the Bible because of this sentence. Because I hate to break it to you, but there are actually seeds smaller than the mustard seed. Okay? So one, one, one guy actually wrote, you can't believe the inerrancy of the Bible anymore because Jesus is wrong. And I want to say, okay, but you're no longer allowed to use hyperbole. So if that guy says to you, all my feet are killing me, you just say, see, see, we can't trust you anymore or any of your scholarship because we know that your feet actually aren't killing you. Or if he had said, man, that travel day lasted forever, we'd have to say, you know, we're going to have to let you go from this university. Can't really believe anything you say anymore because the fact that the day ended shows that it, it didn't last forever. So you're not trustworthy. And he would say, I'm speaking in hyperbole. And we would say, yes, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole and to First century Israel, the mustard seed was like, this was, this was the picture of the smallest little thing. And out of all the garden seeds that you'd plant in your garden, the seeds are tiny on this thing. But here's what's funny about the mustard seed. Out of all the garden plants and all their seeds that you'd plant in your garden, the mustard seed, there's this contrast that you don't see with other seeds and plants. And the contrast is the seed is so teeny, but as for all the garden plants in your yard, it ends up being the biggest of all of them. And so there's this ironic parable in the fact that this thing that's so small, later on, give it some time and birds will actually come and build their home in it. Isn't that kind of cool? The contrast between small, obscure beginnings and something great that just takes over. And Jesus says, my kingdom is like that. My kingdom is like that. The kingdom will sometimes look really small. And that's part of the plan. You know what? I think this really encouraged Mark's audience. We haven't mentioned this in a while, but let's remember Mark's audience. Mark is writing this news of Jesus to a group of Gentile Christians living in Rome. 
And these are the same people you, you may have heard about meeting in catacombs, tunnels underground to have their church services. Why would they do that? Because the Emperor Nero is blaming them for societal problems and is throwing some of them to the beasts while everyone watches. Take a moment, just ask yourself, if we had to meet in a basement because we were getting thrown to lions, how many of you are coming to that church service? Are you coming? I'll be there. But don't you think it could feel terrifying when you're just this teeny, teeny little group, no political clout, no 911 to call, no lawyer to hire. You have no power. If they find you and they throw you in there, that's all you got. And to hear Jesus' words say, it looks tiny, but it's going to grow. There's results there. There's eternal power here. I think that encourages Mark's audience. Think even of Jesus himself. No wealth to speak of, no armies, no institutions, no buildings. Rejected by religious leaders. I mean, here he is, God's king, and he's going to be tried by Pilate, the Roman governor. He's going to sit in chains in front of Pilate. He's going to be interrogated by Herod, this little puppet king of Israel. You think, that's, you think that's a little humbling for God's promised king? Not only that, he's going to be abandoned by his friends and sentenced to a cross. And for the ancient world, culturally, that's not just the ultimate pain, it's the ultimate shame. If you die on a cross, you're garbage. You're worse than garbage. Can't even do that to Roman citizens. It's just for slaves. You're nothing, Jesus. That's what that event said. And on the event, we, on the evening we call Good Friday, how impressive did Christianity look that evening? The disciples are hiding, terrified in an upper room, and Jesus' body is dead in a grave. Does it look like a great kingdom to you? And yet Jesus' parable, from obscure beginnings, it becomes the biggest plant in the garden. You know, Jesus mentioned birds building a nest in this mustard tree. That's almost certainly a reference to the thinking of the Old Testament prophets. Many times a kingdom will be symbolic or a tree will be symbolic for a kingdom. And then when, when the people of the nations rest, find their refuge in that kingdom, they're like the birds of the air building nests. A kingdom that's so strong and so great, everybody comes to it for refuge, for provision, and so here, this is, this is Jesus giving you this hint that even though things start in obscurity, one day all the nations are gonna come to him. The entire world is gonna look to him as king. It's amazing. It's shocking. Can it, can it possibly be true? Friday night, Jesus is dead. Sunday morning, what happens? He's alive. I mean, it's, Jesus speaks of himself this way. He was like a seed planted in his death and his resurrection like a harvest. It's like all of the promises of God's kingdom were grasped and made sure as he rose from the dead. He appears to his disciples. 
the Holy Spirit comes. They begin preaching boldly and fearlessly. The seed takes root. The church is formed. And today, 2,000 years later, we can honestly say that Christianity has literally transformed the world. It's transformed the world. I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but just give you a couple examples. There's a guy named Glenn Scrivener who's written an, an excellent book called The Air We Breathe. Ask me about it after the service if you want more. The Air We Breathe. One thing he says in that book is that today Christianity is the most diverse sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. So throughout church history, you'll see the gospel ebb and flow in different places geographically. But unlike any other religion, it's not tied to one geographical place. And throughout the world, it just expands and expands and expands. Here's one example, right? We would look at Christianity in Britain and think, oh, Christianity's on the, it's on the down a little bit. Did you know the average Anglican in the world today is a black teenage girl from Nigeria? And Nigeria has more Anglicans in it than Britain has people. Missiologists will tell you the gospel's exploding in China, in South America, in Africa. And I've been privileged enough, you've sent me on trips to sometimes to, to train pastors, and you see the church growing in India, in Nepal. There was no church in Nepal until 1950s. Now, this church is growing. Oh, it's hitting all nations. The birds of the air are coming to rest in Christ's kingdom. But not only that, Scrivener says Christianity has transformed even just the heartbeat of the modern world and its values. So again, just an example of how Christianity has, has influenced the world. Scrivener asks, so how did our modern Western culture come to value things like human equality, compassion for the weak, the importance of individual consent, Education and enlightenment, science, freedom, progress, right? Those are all things our Western culture would say, these are essentials. We value these things. And he asks, well, how did it come to be that these seven things became our values? Because as you look globally or historically, you cannot take any of those things for granted. Believe me, in the Roman world, they did not have the view that all people were created equal, no, there's the patriarchs who own things and they're in charge. And if you're a slave, you're garbage and we can do whatever we want with you. And everybody's like, of course. How did the world change so much to where we believed in things like these? Scrivener asks, how did these values become the air we breathe? That's the title of his book. He says, we can answer that question in one word, in two sentences, or in 10 chapters. Now his book, by the way, is 10 chapters, okay? The one word answer is what? Christianity. The two sentence answer goes something like this. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. Western culture already holds particularly Christianish views. And the fact that you think of these values as natural, obvious, or universal shows you how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. He continues, we might feel that Christianity is unimpressive, cruel, coercive, ignorant, anti-science, restrictive, or backwards. 
The reason why these seven accusations bite is because deep down, we believe in the seven values. Look what he says next. Our problems with Christianity turn out to be Christian problems. Do you see what he's saying there? When people attack the church as hypocritical, what standard are they using to say the church is wrong? They're using Christian standards. Even Nietzsche, the arch-atheist, said, the bedrock of the foundation of human rights is the Christian view on the world. So yeah, as Christians, right, we admit sometimes Christianity looks unimpressive, but by what standard are we judging it? Christian standards. These are Christian values. Do you see the legacy in part of Christianity are these values that we hold so dear? And so even our cultural moment that looks down on Christianity kind of has to steal from Christianity in order to judge it. That's how deeply Christianity has impacted the world. Well, those are just two small examples. It's not enough, is it? What, we're, what are we supposed to pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next one? Your kingdom come. We want you to be seen as king. We're tired of all the ways we have fake kings and it's broken. We want, we want you to be seen as king. And you know, this desire for lightning, guess what? It's coming. Look at the way Jesus talks in Luke 17, 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. Here's the hard truth. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And all the lightning longed for at his first coming will strike at his second coming. And every knee will bow. And God will reign and he will be seen to reign. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Evil will be vanquished. God's enemies sent to judgment. And hell, the world will be renewed in harmony and perfection. Coming. So look at these promises these parables give us. Despite the the despite the impair, the apparent unimpressiveness, God will grow His kingdom according to His word, and the results will be overwhelming. And that is meant to encourage us to be faithful. Be faithful. Our last point, how do we respond? Well, just look at this little secret Mark tucks away in Mark chapter four. Jesus is teaching these parables. Look at Mark 4, 10. When he was alone, and what are those next three words? Those around him. Where are these people hanging out? Right there with Jesus. They're watching him, they're listening to him, they're going with him. They ask him about the parables and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Do you see this closeness with Jesus? Following him, that's what we mean by discipleship. Follow Jesus. Same thing in Mark 10, 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but look at this part, privately to who? 
His own disciples, he explained everything. So hidden in this teaching is this invitation, come close to Jesus. Stick close to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Belong to Jesus. And so that's the response to us. Closeness to Jesus according to his word. So if you're not a Christian today, here's what that means. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from all the counterfeit kings in your life, including yourself. Realize that it's not the way to go, but there's a greater king, a better king. Turn and submit yourself to him. How do you do that? You do it according to his word. You see that Jesus came to live a perfect life so that through faith in him, you could be counted as righteous, innocent, as if you never sinned. That's what God gives you through faith in Christ. Jesus died on the cross for you as a substitute so that you can know that all the justice you deserve for your sin and rebellion against God as king, Jesus paid that price for you. And in him, you can be forgiven. And you trust that Jesus rose from the dead and he reigns now. And that through faith, you belong to him. That's the first step on getting close to Jesus. Second, lean into these three, these three core realities that define discipleship. And they're all here in this passage. Word, prayer, community. Word, prayer, community. What do we want to be as a church? We're sowing the word. We're hearing the word. We're talking about the word. We want to do it together. We want to be close to Jesus. Prayer, Lord, grow the word in us. Let your kingdom come. Let your word bear fruit. Community, we do it together. Hearing, sowing the word, living for the glory of God in our everyday life. And here's the great promise, and we see some of it already. God will make his kingdom grow in and through us, just like he's doing all over the world. Will it be slow sometimes? Yes. Will it sometimes look unimpressive? Yes. Can we do it ourselves? No. But there are mysterious forces at work. The power of God's word, he will bring the growth. The results will be overwhelming. And one day, guess what? The lightning will strike. Jesus will come back and guaranteed there will be nothing unimpressive about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us these expectations that uh, sometimes things will look obscure, unimpressive. That doesn't mean you're not working. So help us be people who hear your word and love to sow the seed of your word. Let us be word-based and trust in you to do your work. Grow your kingdom in us, we pray, more and more, Lord, individually in our families, our relationships, at work, through us and our communities. Grow your kingdom according to your word. And help us trust that even when there's obscure and small beginnings, you are working and the results will be overwhelming. One day you're coming back. Help us to look for that day, to long for that day, and to live faithfully for you until then. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.